a listener production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. This is a show in which every week we delve into something of interest, something of intrigue. There's rolling out somewhere in the world and we get our teeth stuck into it. Dr. Keith Souter does a superb job at explaining it. He is like an encyclopedia of international affairs and has been a commentator in Australian media for decades. It's all I need to say, really. My name's Kate Mack. Dr. Keith, the Secret Service, they are the group of, you know, you'd probably classify them almost as FBI or CIA or something, but they look after the president. Yep. I remember movies have been made about them. They're involved in all sorts of Hollywood sort of films. A lot of intrigue around that particular group of people, highly trained. You've got some intel about the rise and the fall of them, though. Yep. So the book is called uh, Zero Fail, The Rise and Fall of the Secret Service. So it's written by Carol Lenig, who works for the Washington Post. She actually has two New York Times bestsellers going at the moment because she's also written a lot with her colleague from the Washington Post on the Trump administration. But it is also, this is her first big solo book, emphasis on big. It runs to hundreds of pages. It's really very detailed, uh, over 500 pages. So what she's done is to track the rise of the Secret Service. As you say, the Secret Service are the individuals who protect the president and the immediate family of the president. The group was formed uh, following the assassination of Abraham Lincoln in 1865, at the end of the American Civil War. It got a a boost in its work following the assassination of President Kennedy in November of of 1963. So you've got extra money going in. And for me, I find it fascinating that on the one hand, Americans want to have their president survive four years in office with a potential another four years, but at the same time, they don't want to pay for it. Funny about that. So it's an underfunded (laughs) arm of the US government. The other problem is that presidents don't like being seen as being distant from their own citizens. So if if you've ever been to Washington, you've been to the White House, there is just this ordinary metal fence around the perimeter of of the White House, around the garden. It's a bit like, no doubt, what you've got in your garden by way of an ordinary metal fence. They've now, in the last uh, a few months, increased the height of the fence, but it's still a fence. It's a fence that you can just put your hands through and touch the grass on the other side or whatever. It's unwise now to try to do that. And also, presidents themselves don't like being surrounded by uh, Secret Service agents. So in the case of Dallas, for example, in 1963, when President Kennedy was assassinated, He'd actually told the agents, don't get onto the running board of my limousine. Stay behind in the follow-up car. So he was actually exposed to the assassination by virtue of not having enough agents. In fact, the agent who leapt onto the back of the car, you may remember that in the film footage, he really shouldn't have been doing that because the president had said he didn't want any agents, and that included his wife's be getting close to that car. So presidents like to move in around the crowd. Now, in Australia, you know, I run across John Howard all the time. Our clubs are on Macquarie Street. So he's going into his club, I'm going into mine. Well, at the moment, of course, we're all under COVID. But you run across these people all the time. The current prime minister is a 
his in-laws are at Wesley Mission, so I run across him there. It's different if you're an American president. You are much more a target of assassination. We've had very little history of political violence in this country. Remember, Arthur Corwell was shot at by a person who later on I think is now at liberty, so he's free in Sydney. But other than that, we've not had a party leader in Australia who's been assassinated. When you look at the United States, there's an appalling history of people who want to attack presidents. It's interesting, Arthur Bremer, for example, in 1972 said, I want to go into the history books, I want to be remembered by history, and I'm going to go and shoot Richard Nixon. He then tried to get near the president and failed. So he then turned his attention on Governor George Wallace from a Southern American state who was then running as a a Democrat candidate in the um, pre-selection battle. And he shot at Governor Wallace. Now, it didn't kill him. It paralysed him for life. And Wallace lived to be quite a few years, a lot older. But Bremer, who is, is out and about, I think, at the moment, he just took the view, I want to go down in the history books for shooting a president. And, of course, the other one was John Hinckley, who was in the news only a few weeks ago. His mother, who's been looking after him, has now died. So there's some question mark as to whether he will stay in that same retirement village. But John Hinckley in 1981 uh, shot at at President Reagan, missed the president, very good footwork by the US Secret Service, despite the, the lack of proper precautions around President Reagan. But, of course, his uh, press person, by the name of Brady, sustained permanent injuries to his skull. And when he eventually died, he was, the death certificate actually says homicide, even though it took several years to, in which to die. And that was John Hinckley, who was infatuated with a Hollywood film star. And eventually he was let out. I think he was originally sentenced to jail for 65 years. He's been let out and has been cared for by his mother, who's living in a what we would call a retirement village. And now the mother in the last few weeks has died, so I'm not sure what's going to happen. But Hinckley has been a reformed individual. But for me, it's fascinating that you've got these individuals on the loose who want to shoot presidents. We've Thankfully, touch wood, we've never had that problem in Australia. And the same in the United Kingdom. There was... Um, one person has been shot in the United Kingdom because the target ducked <laughs> and the bullet went into the person behind him. That was the only assassination attempt on a British prime minister. And we take security so, you know, so seriously here in Australia that the chaser were able to <laughs> infiltrate the security of the prime minister back when we had, was it the G8 here? Yes, exactly. And also um, when I take my Boston University students down to Canberra, we go into old Parliament House and the Prime Minister's office there is a corner office with wide open windows. So somebody with a bazooka could have fired straight the way through the Prime Minister's windows and killed the Prime Minister. My Boston University students who've grown up in a very security conscious post 9-11 world just can't believe how lackadaisical we are with security or were. We've changed now again since 9-11. And now we've gone to the other extreme by virtue of all the security arrangements that we have. But previously, we were very relaxed. Now, I think that's something which American presidents and presidential candidates also admire, I think, about Australia, this freedom to move, to shake hands with people, 
uh, political rallies, etc. Very important to, to use the phrase to press the flesh. You can't do that very easily if you're surrounded by Secret Service agents. You're listening to Global Truths with Dr. Keith Suda. We're talking about the rise and fall of the Secret Service who are responsible for looking after the president in the United States and everything that goes along with it. But it's not just it's not just the security detail, is it, Keith? These guys are highly trained. They're akin to more than SAS kind of level trained, aren't they? Well, this is what Carol Lennig is looking at in the book. She is now critical of the state of the Secret Service. That's why the book is The Rise and Fall. She's very worried about the state of the Secret Service. Okay, there are all these financial issues and primitive technology, the computer systems are not up to scratch, communication systems are not all that good. So there's all of that baggage of stuff. But also what uh, Carol Lennig is looking at is the way in which the agents themselves tend to misbehave. In, in America, we call them frat boys, so fraternity boys. So in other words, it's, it's a bit like groups of undergraduates in the Australian context who just get blind drunk and cause all sorts of problems. So in the United States, they're called fraternity boys or frat boys. And that's really what characterizes a lot of the behavior in the U.S. Secret Service. In other words, that going back to the assassination of President Kennedy, okay, Kennedy had said he didn't want to have Secret Service personnel near his car. Fine. But they'd also been out on the town the previous night. They were all hung over. Even if they had have been on, and and also the driver when he first heard the shots didn't accelerate out. He slowed down, making the president even more of a target for being shot. So she's actually very critical about the behaviour of the secret service agents. They're very lax morals. They um, enjoy, you know, when they're out on the town with the president. They, you know, remove their wedding rings and then they go out and fraternise with prostitutes. There was a terrible scandal during the Obama era of a group of agents who were fraternising with prostitutes. So it comes across really as a, a service that enjoys this immense mystique and prestige that you've referred to in your opening comments. And yet when you actually look at their day-to-day behaviour, they're not particularly well-disciplined all well-organised. Plus, of course, on top of it, you've got the role of politicians trying to use the Secret Service for their own ends. Now, some politicians are very good. Gerald Ford, who replaced President Nixon as president, always did what he was told. Mind you, he still got shot at a couple of times (laughs) (laughs) by women. (laughs) Uh, Secret Service agents, you know, were amazed. Why would anybody want to kill such a nice person? Nixon tried to use the Secret Service to spy on Ted Kennedy. Um, Remember, it was John Kennedy, the older brother, who'd beaten Nixon in 1960. And then um, in 1972, with President Nixon up for re-election, he was able to use the attempted assassination of Governor Wallace as an excuse to be able to say, we should have Secret Service agents protecting Senator Ted Kennedy, who wasn't even running for the White House at that time. He ran later, but not that year. But, of course, Nixon's intention was to be able to get the Secret Service agents whom he would have selected to get dirt on Kennedy. He was assumed that being a Kennedy, he would have been sex mad and going around with as many women as he could. 
and therefore he wanted a Secret Service agent to be shadowing Ted Kennedy to collect dirt, which he could then use if Kennedy were then to decide to stand for election. So that that's how Nixon used the Secret Service. And, of course, most recently we've had Trump's use of the Secret Service. Trump virtually bankrupted the service because not only did he have his immediate family to protect but also his children and wives or husbands. So made for a very expensive venture. Trump uh, had a number of his own buildings where he used to visit to play golf and the Secret Service then had to buy rooms. They had to hire them at commercial rates to put their agents in. So the Trump presidency did very well out of Donald Trump you know, in terms of the Trump business because they were getting all this taxpayer money to pay for the protection around Trump. And interestingly, a lot of the, the Secret Service agents were Trump supporters. So they were wearing those distinctive Trump hats, MAGA, Make America Great Again, those red caps. Uh, they were wearing red ties. Red, it's very confusing. In the United States, red is the color of conservatives and Republicans. Blue is the color of the Democrats. Uh, so they were wearing the red ties. They were identifying with, with Trump. When we got the presidential result and Biden was president-elect, Trump said, I do not accept that. I will challenge that. And so the Secret Service were not able to increase their agents protecting Biden, who had moved from being a presidential candidate to being president-elect. That's extraordinary. Why weren't they able to do it? They were blocked? They were blocked by Trump. Trump simply had said to the Secret Service, I'm still challenging the election. Biden is not yet president-elect. So we see the way in which the Secret Service has really been degraded over the years and all sorts of problems. As I say, what I found amazing in the book was just the intimate nature of the White House, that you can just jump over the fence and walk towards the White House. So we've had people knocking on the on those lovely French doors trying to get into the White House that got over the the fence. As I say, the fence in the last few months has now been increased in size. But in fact, if, if you're a good rifle shot, then you would shoot out of Lafayette Park through those railings and into the White House. It's a very vulnerable building. But that's because, as I say, American presidents want to be seen to be accountable to the people. And so, well, you get other presidents like John Kennedy who kept disappearing at night to go off for these liaisons with a variety of women, and he would deliberately dodge his own secret service. They'd lose the president for a night while he was off with a, another a, attractive young woman. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Gallivanting. <laughs> Gallivanting, exactly. So this all comes out in the book. As I say, it's 500 pages. It's really gripping stuff. She's uh, done a huge amount of homework. So this is a second uh, bestseller that she's produced this year. As I say, the first one was with her colleague from the Washington Post looking at the final year of the Trump administration. So does she shed some light on how they can regroup and get that elite edge back and that reputation back they had all those years ago? Well, the implication is in the in the book, the way she's written it, is that there are a number of things that can be done in terms of extra resources. That's obviously a key factor. Extra resources and the extra training and better recruitment. And perhaps there are some people, the veterans, who ought to be just pensioned off and try to start afresh and build up a new team from that way. 
It's a really, if you think about the role that the American president still plays, even though the United States is declining in world affairs, the way that the US government is structured, everything revolves around the president in a way that we cannot understand in Australia. So in Australia, we have cabinet government. So the prime minister is simply the first among equals. So if the prime minister goes too far out of line, he or she could be removed by their own colleagues. So Margaret Thatcher did not lose an election. She was sacked by her cabinet colleagues. Bob Hawke was sacked by his cabinet colleagues. And then, of course, more recently in Australia, we've had all these changes with Rudd, Julia Gillard, etc., Malcolm Turnbull being removed. They're all removed by their colleagues. An American president cannot be removed in that same way. A president is elected by the people for four years and may be re-elected for another four years. So they, they can't be removed. So for a start, they've got a, a solid position. They know they'll still be in office at the end of the day. No Australian prime minister or premier has that guarantee. And then secondly, there is just so much that is done in the name of the president. A bit like the Queen of England. So many things are done in the Queen's name, even though the Queen is unaware of it. That's just the way that it is done. And the Americans, when they designed their constitution, they didn't want to have um, a king of America, although that was offered to George Washington. But he said that we obviously need to have some sort of person preside over the nation. And hence, we get the role of president being used in the United States. And so much is then done in the name of the president. It's a, a full-on 24-hour job. If the president were to be unwell for, say, an hour or something, like having a surgical procedure, then there is legislation in place that will give the power to the vice president. Whereas in Australia, as you know, our prime minister goes on holiday <laughs> and leaves one of his colleagues in charge of the country. You don't even know whether or not the prime minister's in the country or what he's doing. Whereas in the United States, the president is omnipresent for the four years or eight years in which that person is in office. And so if you do kill a president, it really has a much bigger impact on American politics than killing a prime minister in Australia or Great Britain or New Zealand. I mean, what a way to end, Keith. (laughs) (laughs) Upbeat. Very upbeat, but it's a great (laughs) book. I thoroughly recommend This book, as I say, it's a very detailed read. Carol Lennig has produced a really good book, but a disturbing one as well. Global Truths was presented by Dr. Keith Souter and me, Kate Mack. Produced by Matt Dwyer. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.